Good morning, everybody. So before we try to answer that question together today, I want to give you a two-minute monthly update on our construction project, what's been happening and what's slated to happen in the next few weeks. So uh, this past month has been uh, a lot of work going on in our do-it-yourself project, our volunteer project with the classrooms down below the offices. Those classes are coming along great. We passed the framing inspection this week, and we hope to get in there and use the uh, remodeled classroom sometime in November. And just a big, big thanks again to all of our volunteers who are carrying that project along so well. We thank God for you. Demolition is complete of the old buildings, including the old part of the foyer that had to be removed. And uh, you've noticed, I'm sure, that the bathrooms are sort of, uh, uh, ups, what is it, fruit basket upset right now. There's bathrooms over in the gym, if you haven't found those yet, that are also available in addition to the, the ones marked by the signs out here. The modular classrooms, we get into them this week, so power was hooked up the last few days, and we're just waiting on one final inspection, hopefully on Tuesday. So we're excited about that. And the excavation has begun out here for the new children's classrooms and worship center. So that's kind of what's been going on. Uh, the next few weeks, what's on the schedule is for the excavation to continue, for the forms to be put out for the uh, concrete and to begin pouring concrete, installing of the electrical lines underground, and a temporary gas line is supposed to go in this week. So this should be the last week that we're dealing with temperature issues in here. We should be back to normal heat next weekend. Any amens to that? This service doesn't really feel it, but it was 61 when I walked in the uh, first service this morning. Okay, sheetrock, um, insulation, sheetrock, and painting and carpeting are kind of next on the slate in the uh, classrooms downstairs, and we're busy getting ready for a modified Harvest Carnival this year. We don't have this building to use at all. We're not going to do games in the gym, but we are going to pass out candy. We're going to let people know where some of the other safe places in the neighborhood are for uh, families to take their kids, and we're going to invite people to come back to Lake City with their children. So uh, we're looking for volunteers. If you'd like to help with that, just write Harvest Carnival on the communication card. Somebody will be in touch with you this week. So in spite of all of the inconveniences... I have to say I'm just very excited about the project and how it's going, and I'm especially excited about how it positions us to increase our impact in making disciples in this community and actually throughout the whole world. So praise God for that. And by the way, if you haven't been getting my Wednesday uh, email updates on the, on the construction, a picture and a couple of sentences about what's going on and a couple of things to pray about, that means we may not have your email address. So we'd love to send that to you and, and have you... Uh, part of our uh, weekly updates, uh, give us your email address, and uh, we would love to, to make that available to you. All right, so let's jump into the God questions. Do all roads lead to heaven is the question today. We're going to consider what I believe is the most controversial of claims in all of Christianity, that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Personally, I know when I have a conversation with someone about this that I usually just sort of get this little cringe that uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to really answer that question in a way that satisfies them or not. And for that reason, I was glad to be able to uh, actually study this question this week and to be able to share a few thoughts with you this morning about it, about how we can have productive conversations with people about this inflammable question. So this is a problem or concern many, many people have with Christianity. 
Maybe one of the reasons for that is because 57% of evangelical Christians are confused about this one. All right? So almost 60% of evangelicals say there are many paths to heaven. And I don't know if they're simply confused or they're, they're afraid of um, offending people or what. But understand this. This is not a secondary issue at all. This is the very basis of our faith. It gets down to how a person is saved and how we get to heaven. So think about it. If Jesus was wrong and all roads do lead to heaven, then his death on the cross was a horrible mistake. Remember him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking God, if there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me, looking for another way. And heaven was silent. God did not provide another way. The death of Christ is the only way to heaven. And so the one thing I would say today is this. Don't allow yourself to get intimidated into thinking that this is somehow a, a message of hatred or a message of intolerance, because it is not. It is not a message of hatred. It is a message of hope. We want everyone to know the truth and to be saved and to find the way to heaven. And so this objection to Christianity can probably be summarized with one word. It's the problem of exclusivity. At least that's how some put it, the problem of exclusivity. Not a problem that people only voice about Christianity either, by the way. Other religions are also, uh, people complain about the same thing. And it usually goes something like this. How, how can you possibly claim that your religion is the only true religion? And so I think it's safe to say this, that many people believe it's arrogant, that it's narrow-minded, and divisive to say that Jesus is the only path to God. And you've probably heard that expressed one way or another. Sometimes people say it like this, I, I can no longer believe in a God who says there's only one way to heaven. Have you ever heard that? Maybe you've even thought that yourself. Imagine that you're seated on an airplane, and your airplane makes a crash landing, not a complete Wipeout, but a crash landing on the runway, and the cabin, you, you realize I'm alive, and the cabin's beginning to fill up with smoke, and the flight attendant stands up at the front of the cabin, switches on the flashlight, and, and says, follow me, there, there's one way out of this burning plane. Would you accuse that flight attendant of being hateful or intolerant because they say there's just one way out of here safely? Of course not. You'd thank her. You'd follow her to safety. And the reason that Jesus said there's one way to heaven isn't to keep people out of heaven, it's to make sure people know the way to get in. And so the real question here is not, how do I feel about what Jesus said, this claim that he's the only way? The real question is, is his claim the truth? And if the Bible is true, as was so well established last week in that sermon, then this is a no-brainer. We just need to accept what Jesus said and learn how to explain it to people. But you know, our world today is marked by religious pluralism. Uh, that people, and people tend to see this claim as sort of narrow and bigoted, right? And sometimes we can kind of get gun-shy about our beliefs. So 
Let me define this term religious pluralism for you. Religious pluralism is the belief that all religions are equally valid. And you've probably heard that expressed one way or another. Listen, our world today is radically pluralistic. And the political correctness of our day says this, that, that we need to be tolerant of all views of all religions. So how do we handle this claim that all religions are equally valid? Well, one way is to ask, why should I believe that statement? I don't agree with the statement that all religions are equally valid. What proof do you have behind that? Why do you say that? Timothy Keller, who was a great resource for this message, points out that those who say that it is arrogant and narrow to claim that you have the truth sometimes use this fun illustration that, that goes like this, and chances are you've, you've heard this. They say that religion is like a group of blind men who come upon an elephant one day, and they all grab hold of the elephant in different places, and each one begins to describe what the elephant is like. One man takes hold of the elephant's trunk, and he says, ah, elephants are, are like a big hose. They're sort of long and skinny and flexible creatures. The next man takes hold of a leg, and he says, no, no, you're all wrong. Elephants are thick and stocky and stiff. And the next man takes hold of the elephant's ear, and he says, you're both wrong. You're very mistaken. Elephants are sort of flat and soft and floppy. And so the three men begin to argue, and they say that the other's view of the elephant is all wrong, and that they have the right view. And then people say, you know, the same thing is true of religion. No one has all the facts about God. And just as all three of the blind men were right and all three of them are wrong, so it is with religion. Each one had a part of the picture, but not all of reality. And so we should recognize that each one is partially right and partially wrong. And they conclude like this, religions are the same way. All religions see part of the spiritual reality. None see all of it. No one should insist that they have the entire truth and that the others are wrong. It sounds pretty logical when you first hear that. Well, Leslie Newbigin writes this in the Gospel in a Pluralistic Society, and I quote. He says, over the years, so he was a missionary in India. He says, over the years, I have had this illustration thrown at me over and over again. One day, he says, it suddenly hit me. The only way you could know that none of the blind men were completely accurate in their view of the elephant is if you could see the whole elephant. The only way you could tell the story of the blind men and the elephant is if you could see the whole elephant yourself. And so I suddenly realized that the only way you could possibly know that every religion just has part of the truth is if you assume that you have all of the truth. It's the only way you can know that each is partly right if you assume that you have all truth, which is the very thing that they say that no one has. And so Leslie Newbigin concludes that this illustration is incredibly arrogant. It's incredibly arrogant and imperialistic to say all religions are equal. There's an appearance of humility in saying that the truth is much greater than any one of us can grasp, but in fact, it is the height of arrogance to claim that you have a knowledge that is superior to all others. Listen, there is no way 
for someone to know that all religions are equally valid without assuming that they have the kind of knowledge that they say no one has. So how can they make that statement? It just doesn't work. It's logically contradictory. And we'll come back to the problem of exclusivity in a few minutes. But first I want to point out that we did not invent the idea that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Okay, we didn't come up with this idea. Jesus did. So please take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 14. I'm going to ask you to turn to two passage, passages today, and this is the first one, John chapter 14. Here Jesus is preparing his disciples for his own death and departure. So he's rented an upper room in Jerusalem. He's had a Seder meal prepared for them. As they arrive, they, he washes their feet, and then he tells them he's going to die and he's going to go back to heaven. So if you found your place in John 14, just follow along as I read these first six verses out loud. Here's what Jesus said. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is reassuring his friends that Everything is ultimately going to be okay, even though he's going to die. He's making an eternal provision for them, a home for them in heaven, and by inference for all Christ followers who will come after them. But taken by themselves, these final words, these words in verse 6, have stirred up a lot of strong feelings in a lot of people over a lot of years. No one comes to the Father except through me. Did Jesus really mean that? Is he really saying what it seems like he is saying here, that he is the only way to God, the only way to get to heaven? I mean, isn't that awfully narrow and egotistical? Well, this is not the first time Jesus has said something like this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said it this way. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. It's Matthew 7. And Jesus' followers understood clearly what he was saying. Okay, soon after his death, you hear Peter proclaiming publicly in the streets of Jerusalem. Listen to what he said as recorded for us in Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is a bold and a potentially offensive assertion that Peter preached. He's saying that the name of Jesus, all of who Jesus is, is the only way humanity can ever be saved. So politically incorrect in our day, right? How can anyone or any religion be so arrogant as to believe that they have the only way? And that is a question that every spiritually serious person 
has to ask himself or herself at some point in their life, or they should. And so today I want to help you answer that question for yourself or consider it for yourself. And by the way, I've given you a number of other verses where Jesus said essentially the same thing. They're listed on your sermon notes there. We don't have time to look at them all today, but I want, you to, I want to encourage you to take a serious look at all of them to see exactly what Jesus said about this subject. And again, when you discuss this with people, make it clear that this claim that Christ made, this is not your personal view, but this is Christ's claim. Jesus said this, okay? It's not an idea that began with you. And then understand as well that part of this whole issue is this problem. People often confuse absolute truth and relative truth. Absolute truth and relative truth. And there is a place for both. Not all truth is absolute. Not all truth is relative. Some truths are one or the other. For example, if I were to ask you, what temperature does water freeze at? Well, there's an absolute answer to that question. Water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay? But on the other hand, if I were to ask you, what temperature is a comfortable temperature for a room to be kept at? 67 Some of you would probably say 72. Uh, Relevant question today with our heating issues right now, right? So uh, if my mom were here, my mom is is, uh, living with us and she's on hospice, she'd say somewhere between 75 and 80. You know, so there's no absolute right answer to this, right? But when it comes to the question, how can a person have a relationship with God, I think most people assume We're talking about a relative truth, that everyone has to figure that out for themselves. But the reality is that this falls under the realm of absolute truth. The reason is that God himself has said, there is one way to approach me. And it's through the way that I have prescribed, and that is through my son, Jesus Christ. Remember that by definition, truth is narrow. For example, 2 plus 2 equals 4. 2 plus 2 does not equal 6. It does not equal 3. Okay? And if you'd want to disagree with me about that, try it out on your math teacher next time you or your kid has a test to take. Okay? There's absolute truth. And God himself has the right to define how people come to him. He's the creator. So don't be afraid to point out that there is absolute truth in life. Don't be afraid of being called intolerant. Truth is narrow and even divisive at times. Let's go one step further with that. Almost everyone has a set of exclusive beliefs. Religion is a set of answers to the big questions in life, such as why are we here? What's the purpose of life? How do we determine what's right, what's wrong? What's wrong with the human race? How do we fix it? Nobody can operate in life without some set of answers to those questions. And those answers are implicitly religious because you can't prove those things in a lab. This is not science, okay? Whatever you answer boils down to some assumptions. It's a faith thing. It's a religious belief. You might not see it as religious, but it is. And anyone who tells you that you can't impose your set of beliefs upon others is actually doing the very same thing. You see that? 
It's said every day. Don't bring your values, don't bring your views of God into the public square and impose them on me, impose them on others. But more and more, people are recognizing what hypocrisy that is, that viewpoint is. So Michael Perry is a scholar and an expert at, at Wake Forest University who wrote this, and I quote, To say religious reasoning must be kept out of the public square because it's faith-based and it's controversial is itself a faith-based statement which is incredibly controversial and therefore on its own terms ought to be thrown out. So here's where we are, and this is Timothy Keller, how he puts it. He says, everybody has, to take on, everybody has a take on spiritual reality which is based on religious assumptions, based on faith. And everybody thinks their take is better and other people should adopt it because then the world would be a better place. And therefore, everybody has a set of exclusive beliefs. And therefore, what really matters is not who has a set of exclusive beliefs, but which set of exclusive beliefs can best produce loving, inclusive, reconciling, peaceful behavior. And I'd like to suggest to you today that it's Christianity that does that best. So let's look at how Christianity's uniqueness makes it so compelling. All right? Christianity's uniqueness is compelling. There are just some things about the Christian gospel that are absolutely unique. And they give us the best strategy for dealing with all of the divisive views that there are out there. Because these are the very things that will empower you and empower me to be agents of peace and reconciliation and hope in the world. And they're different from how all other religions view the world, all other worldviews. Now, it might be sort of counterintuitive to stress what's different about Christianity, what's unique about it. So follow me here. Four things that are unique about Christianity. Here's number one. Jesus Christ claimed to be God in the flesh rather than just another man. Jesus made some claims that are unique. So we're going to look at 1 John 4. That's the other passage I'd like you to turn to with me. 1 John 4 is a letter that John wrote. And here he's writing about how to recognize false views, false teachers, false approaches to God. Here's what he says. 1 John 4, 1 and 2. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Don't miss that. John said Jesus Christ has come. It doesn't say he was born. It says he was come. It's true that he was born. But the point is this. To say that Jesus Christ has come is to also say that he came from someplace else before he came into the world. This is an implicit claim that is explained explicitly elsewhere, especially in the Gospels. But every religion, so every, other, every religion claims that it has a founder who was a human being. Christianity says Jesus Christ, in him, God himself came into the world. So what do Hinduism and Islam and Buddhism and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses all have in common? They 
all were started by a man, and they all reject the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. Let me say that again. All these other religions claim to originate with some great man, or some prophet, something like that, but only Jesus Christ claimed to be God in the flesh. Christianity originates in God rather than in man, and that makes all the difference. So that's the first unique thing about Christianity. Jesus is God. The second thing that sets Christianity apart from all other ways to God is this, that Jesus Christ arose from the dead. He rose from the dead. Another uniqueness of our faith is that its founder of it is alive. Okay? Every other founder of these various paths to God is dead. They, were, they died, they were buried, their bones are in a tomb somewhere. Jesus Christ alone rose from the dead and is alive today. Listen to John eleven twenty five and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He proved it by rising from the dead. And the resurrection of Christ not only sets Christianity apart from all other ways to God, it's the supreme confirmation of Jesus' claims. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then Christianity is true and his claims are true. And that's the second way that our faith is unique. It alone has a founder who is alive today. Here's the third thing. Jesus Christ offers a mission that is compelling and contagious. So let's go back to 1 John 4, which says that Jesus has come in the flesh. Why put it like that, in the flesh? Well, because this is another way that Christianity is unique. It doesn't just teach that Jesus came to the earth, but that he came in a real, physical, human body, in the flesh. And John says that is the test of orthodoxy. Okay? Other religions see the purpose of salvation as liberating us from the flesh. In fact, many religions believe the problem is the flesh and this physical world, and we need to escape from it. That's where we find freedom. Some religions say this world is just an illusion, that we're liberated from it through changes of consciousness. That's Eastern religions in particular. Western religions tend to view the flesh as bad and say we get liberated from all of that through morality, by good deeds. That's how we escape this nasty world and get to heaven. But Christianity says that at birth, God received a body. And at the resurrection, he still had a body, a resurrected one. He ate food. He allowed others to touch his wounds. He, in other words, he wasn't a spirit. He wasn't a ghost. And that tells us something. God isn't getting rid of the world. Okay? He's redeeming this world. And eventually he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, Christianity finds hope not in just escaping from this world, but in transforming this world and bringing God himself into our world to get rid of death and to get rid of disease and to get rid of injustice and all of the problems, all of the brokenness in this world. It's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. See, no other religion defines the purpose of salvation quite that way. 
Vinath Ramachandra says something amazing about Christianity that I want to quote for you. He says, Christian salvation lies not in an escape from this world, but in the transformation of this world. You will not find hope for this physical world in any other religious system or philosophy. The biblical vision is unique, and that is why if someone says, surely there is salvation in other faiths, I always ask them, what salvation are you talking about? No faith holds out a promise of eternal salvation for the world like the cross and resurrection of Jesus do, end quote. And for that reason, Christianity works to improve the world around us. We don't just dismiss the world and say, oh, well, it's going to burn up someday. Who cares? And that's why Christianity has led the way to build schools around the world and orphanages and hospitals and send missionaries and to help with natural disasters. And that's the third way Christianity is unique the purpose for which we are saved. And finally, it's unique in its method of salvation. Jesus Christ offers salvation by grace through faith rather than through works. The fourth thing that is unique about Christianity is the method of grace. Okay? In all other religions, they say, you know, if you want to be saved, you must perform the truth. You have to do certain good deeds to earn your way into God's favor and then in, into heaven. In all other religions, we're told to do things, to do works. In Islam, you have to keep the five pillars. In Judaism, you have to keep the Mosaic law. In Buddhism, you have to follow an eightfold path. In Mormonism, you obtain salvation through obedience to the laws and ordinances of the Book of Mormon. In all the religions of the world, you have to perform certain deeds and do certain works. But that's not what the gospel says at all. So let's go back to 1 John 4. I want to point out verse 10 to you. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the covering, the forgiveness for our sins. So this verse tells us that God loved us before we ever chose to love him. You see, Jesus is not primarily a teacher who came to tell us how to live so we can follow it and be saved. Jesus is primarily a savior who lived the life we couldn't live and died in our place. As Keller said, Jesus died the death we should have died and lived the life we should have lived. And then he confers all of that perfect righteousness and forgiveness on all of us imperfect sinners as a gift of radical grace. And he does it at the outset, at the beginning of our relationship with him, the moment we accept him. He doesn't wait until we've earned enough points. He dispenses it at the start. End quote. See, Christianity is the only one that claims Jesus did all the work. It's all done. We can't do it. And there is nothing you and I can do to earn salvation. It's a free gift offered by God to us through faith in Christ and his death and resurrection. And that's why Ephesians 2 puts it like this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. It's a radical gift of grace, salvation is. So those are four things that are unique about biblical Christianity. But you know, once we understand how Jesus Christ and his claims stand alone, we must be prepared to sort of answer some of the questions that follow along with them. To help you with that, I want to recommend a good book to you by a man named Dr. Robert Jeffers. And the book is called Not All Roads Lead to Heaven. It's on our resource page on the website as well if you forget it. Not All Roads Lead to Heaven. He deals specifically with the question that we're talking about here, but also many of the related questions that are sort of logical follow-ups, such as this one. I'll take time just to deal with one. What about those who have never heard of Jesus? If Jesus is the only way to heaven, what about those who never hear about him? So let's say there's a 13-year-old girl living in Iran who has never heard about Christ, never seen a Bible. How can she be saved? Well, Paul said this in Romans 1. He said, every person on the planet can look at the heavens, can look at creation, and know that there is a God. Here's what he said. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. It's talking there about general revelation, that, that which every human being can see just by looking at creation. And while that information is insufficient to save people, that revelation is sufficient, if it's rejected, to condemn people. So let's say that 13-year-old girl looks around her and says to herself, man, look at all of this. There must be a creator. I want to know him. I believe that God will send that girl or anyone else who approaches God, seeks God sincerely, then God will provide the information about Jesus Christ that they need to be saved. You say, well, how could God possibly do that? There's so many people in the world. How could he possibly do that? I want to give you a couple examples from Scripture. The first is Acts chapter 8, where we have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, this African official who was seeking after God, and he rides in his chariot all the way from Africa to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. And on his way home, he's going home in his chariot, reading the, the scroll of Isaiah, and God miraculously sent Philip the evangelist to meet him on the Gaza road. And Philip explains Isaiah to him and tells him about Christ and the official is saved. Or consider Acts chapter 10, the, the Roman centurion Cornelius, who's also a worshiper of God. And he's, he loves God, he prays to God regularly, he gives money to the poor. And you know, by most people's standards, that would be enough to get to heaven, to pray to God regularly and to give a lot of money to the poor. But God says, no, that's not enough. And God miraculously sent Peter to Cornelius to preach to him about Jesus Christ. And Cornelius was saved. And so what I'm saying is that whenever someone responds to the limited revelation God provides in general revelation, in creation, and seeks God sincerely, that God will send them the information they need to be saved through somebody or something. Sometimes it's through a missionary. 
or through the Bible, the gift of a Bible, or through the radio or television or other electronic media. Sometimes Jesus himself comes to people and appears to them in dreams and visions like we hear so much about today. Listen, God is unlimited in how he reveals himself to people, but I believe he does it all the time and that he can do it with everyone who seeks him sincerely. And I believe that's why Peter wrote, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, if you want to explore some of those related questions further, pick up the book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven. So let's talk about application, all right? Some next steps. Here's number one. I will honestly evaluate my own beliefs about Jesus' claim to be the only way to God. So my goal today was simply to help you think about that claim of Christ and decide if you believe it or not. Do you believe what Jesus said? See, everyone must make their own personal decision about that claim. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If Jesus was right, if that's a true statement as I believe it is, you can't logically believe that all roads lead to heaven. And so I pray that you choose to believe in the truth of what Jesus taught. But take the time to honestly wrestle with that question. Next step two. I will embrace the uniqueness of Christ in Christianity. Christianity is absolutely unique. It's different from all other ways that people try to come to God. And I believe that there is value in simply acknowledging that and embracing that truth. Okay? You, you don't have to agree that all religions are right, that, like, as some people claim, because Christ is different. And if he is God in the flesh, as he claimed, then he is the only way to God. And just accept that. And frankly, the uniqueness of the gospel is one of the attractive things to me about Christianity. I love how it has impacted the world over the centuries, and I love the invitation Jesus gives us to join him, to make a difference in the world for his kingdom. So I didn't spend a lot of time today on talking about what other religions believe. The book that we're going through in our small groups, the God Questions book, does that a lot. So I wanted my thoughts today to complement, not complement the book, not to just explain the book. So it's not too late to pick up the book. There's copies down at the uh, small group table in the foyer. Still a great time to get in one of the small groups and really dive deeper into this stuff. And I encourage you to do that. There's still four more uh, weeks to go in our study. So stop by the table, write, write, or write a small group on your communication card and get in a group if you're not in one already, please. I'd also encourage you to pick up the little uh, gift book that it goes along with the big book. So we also have these gift books available that's kind of a synopsis of the big book, which includes a gospel presentation at the end of it. If you have a friend who's asking questions about Christianity, for five bucks you can give them this book that will explain the gospel to them and answer many of their questions. So you might want to stop by and, and do that as well. Next step number three. I will stop working for God's acceptance and choose to come to God through faith alone. Listen, not all roads lead to heaven, as many people claim they do. And I hope that you have seen what the Bible teaches about how to come to God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that there is nothing you or I 
can do to earn God's forgiveness by our own works, by our good deeds. But God does offer forgiveness as a gift. And you can receive it by faith, even today, if you've never done so before. Would you pray with me? Let's bow together as we close in prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you are the one true God, that you have made yourself known to us in your word and in the person of Jesus Christ. You came in the flesh to reveal yourself to us, and you did that in a way we could understand, and you want us to know how to have a relationship with you. You want us to know that it's through faith in Christ alone, no other way. And so I offer this prayer today, this invitation to anyone here today that wants to have your forgiveness, to know without a doubt they're going to heaven someday. Friend, if that's you, would you just pray silently in your heart of hearts with me and say something like this to God. God, I want your forgiveness. I agree that I have broken your laws. I've, I've sinned against you. And today I, I turn from my sin and I put my faith in Christ alone. I invite him in my life to forgive me and to take control of my life. And I thank you for that amazing gift. Lord, thank you for saving us through Jesus Christ, your son. And God, I pray that you would give us confidence in the things that he said, that they are absolutely true so that we can share them effectively with others you place in our lives. For we pray these things in the powerful name of Christ. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. God bless you.